Hi everyone, it's the Life of Jam live video podcast. I have a special guest today, Jacqueline Mance. And so everyone, just so you know, this is a test case. Juanita Stella Mance, I'm Jem, and I am running my own tech tonight. I'm going to start doing this myself. This is going to be just like old school where I do this myself. So it is seven o'clock almost. So we're going to start. This is a Life of Jem live video podcast. And today, and just as an aside, this is season two. Episode 19, but season two, episode one. And I have on my wonder twin, Jacqueline Marie Mance. And we're calling this episode, Writing Your Truth, a.k.a. Twins in Faux Furs. And I'm going to start with the story. And then Jackie, I'm going to introduce my wonder twin. She's going to read from her new book, Embracing Dawn. It's available on Amazon. She wrote it with the Prison Education Project. And we're going to talk more about that and about her work with the Prison Education Project. She's actually teaching in Africa right now. So we have a lot to talk to Jackie about. But first, I'm going to read just a portion from a story about our wonder twinhood. I am in our family room watching what's happening on our Zenith television. Roger's little sister Dee is telling her brother to give her a quarter to keep her mouth shut. Our little sister Annie is in her pink nightdress sitting beside me playing with her baby fresh doll. Baby fresh smells like baby powder. Suddenly I hear the faucet running at full blast and I turn to see my twin sister Jackie running back and forth into the kitchen filling up a small bowl of water. What are you doing? I ask her as she runs by in her silky blue dove short shorts and her rainbow t-shirt. Jackie doesn't answer. Jackie, I yell again, this time louder. Again, no answer. I see Jackie run by again. This time she is carrying an even bigger bowl of water. Jackie, answer me, I scream. What are you doing? I smell smoke, and even before I hear the siren of the alarm go off, I know there is a fire. Jackie likes playing with matches. Oh no, I think. This is bad. Get a towel and fan the alarm, I yell at Annie, who is sniffing in the air. I race into the living room and see tall flames the color of Ronald McDonald's hair. That is a lot of fire, I think. The whole place could burn down like Tara. Jackie is throwing water from her bowl on the curtains, the ones mom bought from Montgomery Ward after saving for months. Next to the drapes is our favorite chair. We call it the king chair because it looks like a throne of black velvet. The king chair is also on fire. I see it smoking and can smell the charred velvet. Racing out the door, I turn on the smelt and grab the green water hose and run back into the living room I aim the hose at the curtains and at the king chair, but there is no water. The hose is twisted. Jackie is looking at the flames like she is frozen. Jackie, I scream. Wonder twin, wonder twin, straighten out the hose, please. Mom will kill us if we burn down the house. And I'm going to stop there so that you'll buy my book that just is coming out next month called uh, Tales of an Inland Empire Girl. And you can hear about whether we burn the house down. So, speaking of burning the house down, let me introduce my guest. 
Her name is Dr. Jacqueline Marie Nance. She is my wonder twin. She has her PhD, or well, it's actually an EDD in education from Cal State San Bernardino. She is a teacher in Desert Hot Springs, and she is an amazing writer. She works with the Prison Education Project. She's going to tell us all about it. So, Jackie, welcome to Life of Gem. Unmute yourself. Unmute yourself. Thanks, Juanita, a.k.a. Jem. It's, it's a pleasure and an honor to be here with you and to hear my stories aloud, our stories. Mm. <laughs> and we have on our faux furs. Yes, we do. Where did you get that fur? I got this from uh, the Cancer Society thrift store in Rancho Mirage. And is it vintage? It is. It's from the 1950s. It even has like the furrier thing and it has a J too. So it was meant to be mine, like Laverne and Shirley, Juanita. I might have to shoplift that from you one day. <laughs> okay, so let's talk about your book. Your yes. book is called Embracing Dawn. And why don't you yes. just give us a short overview of how this book came to be. To be. And just for our, our readers who um, don't know this book, it's actually two narratives. It's Jacqueline's narrative. She writes as a woman named Marie. She uses a nom de plume, a pseudonym. And she writes it with a woman who's incarcerated who also uses a pseudonym. And they're contrasting narratives. And what I love the most about it is how many intersections there are, um, amazingly, between you, a PhD, uh, an EDD person with your doctorate, um, and a woman who's incarcerated. There's all these intersections in your lives. And you write these contrasting chapters. And it's amazing. It, you you just, it, you get a whole different view when you read these two narratives together. Because it goes, her voice, your voice. Your voice, her voice. So tell us about it. How did it come to be? So, you know, during COVID, I wanted to do something. Something other than March. Um, and so I had always wanted to work in the prisons. Because, you know, I have my own background. I, I've struggled. I was a, a wayward youth, as we would call it. And I had some challenges, you know, as I grew older. And so I always wanted to, you know, give back and help people. And I really believe that education is always a path to uh, success. It's, it's freed me. It's freed you, you know. And so I decided to just um, volunteer with the Prison Education Project, which is uh, been around for quite a while, and it's all servant-led. It's all um, volunteer. So I volunteered to work with them, and I just decided to do autobiographical writing. I didn't know who I was going to get, and um, I met. So let me stop you right there. So sure. they pair you with someone to work with? They do. So it's by what we call JPay, and JPay is the institutional's prison's email. So mm. we wrote our book entirely by email. So I introduced, they had the curriculum and we had seven weeks of curriculum where we got to know each other's stories. And during that time, uh, I would just write my, I would always do a sample. So whatever the prompt was, I would do a sample and say, now write yours and send it back to me. And we did that for seven weeks. And like you right. said, we had a lot of intersections immediately. Uh, and I can talk about those later, but really, it was really just getting to know someone, putting it down on paper and then deciding because it was such a powerful she was a great writer and I love to write that we actually um agreed to tell our story so we didn't start writing a book it was just like going to be a class mm. but because we were both so into it so powerful and had so many connections and we developed such a trusting relationship that we could actually be very honest I had been 
I was more honest in those emails than I'd ever been in my life. Mm. Uh, and and so- that really is, you know, the power of memoir when you're telling yes. your story. I truly believe that narrative has the power to change the world. And the stories we need to tell are number one, our own, but also marginalized people, people who are incarcerated. Because, you know, I truly believe as a deputy public defender that no one is their worst act. I think we're all our best act. And my, you know, my own story, you know, we you graduated from high school. I dropped out five units short and watched you walk. And um, that didn't define me, though. You know, I had many other acts. And I, I think your book is testament to the fact because you hear about Tessa and her work with restorative justice. You hear about Tessa. And even though um, she is in prison for murder, she has a lot of remorse. And um, it really is the story of redemption. So did you become close with her? You know, we always have to have certain boundaries, but it was almost impossible not to because we both heard each other's stories and we we wrote stuff we had never written before and we put it down on paper and we were listening, hearing and reading each other's stories. So, mm. yes, we're very close as two people can be as close as two people can be that have never met because we've never met in person, but I do feel like I know uh Tessa's story and she knows my story. And so we really do know each other. And I always wish the best for her. And I do believe she has achieved some amount of freedom through the act mm. of writing this book, as have I. Wow. I, I really do believe that. I think that, um, you know, the reason I finally finished my memoir, um, the young adult novel I've been writing for 15 <laughs> years is twofold. Number one, you wrote this book in one year. And I was like, what am I waiting for? But number two, I thought if I die tomorrow, what would I regret? And I really didn't have many regrets. I have the love of my life. I have a beautiful house, great dogs. I'm close to my sisters, close to my best friends, close to my mom. And I made peace with my dad. What would I regret? And I was like, I'll regret not finishing this book. That would be my one regret. And that's why I finished it, because I had to compete with you. And uh, so you motivated me. It wasn't competition, but it was motivation. And then number right. two, um, this sense of impending mortality that COVID brought. And mm-hmm. I, I really do believe COVID has a silver lining. Creativity flourished. You wrote this book during COVID. Is that right? I did. We wrote it the whole year and we actually published it um, in 2021. And we started in 2020. So, because I had an email, write your story 2020, that I would wow. use to correspond to Tessa, um, which, by, like you already said, is not her real name. And I wrote it under Marie Rodriguez. And you even said, I wish you would have wrote it under your name. And I do too sometimes because I have nothing to hide now. All my mm-hmm. secrets are out in the air. And I mean, I can talk about anything. I'm not always comfortably. But I can still do it. And before this book, I could not. I never wanted to write memoir. Mm. My stories were always fictionalized Mm. because I had so much shame. Yeah. And you know what RuPaul says? Take that which you think is your your weakness. Take that which you are ashamed of and own it. And that's Mm. where true power and freedom is. Mm. And that ownership of your narrative. And I remember when I was a corporate lawyer, no one knew I was a high school dropout. I was ashamed of myself. And how can you really be a true artist if you're ashamed of yourself? So you have to get over that, right? And memoir is the best way to do it. I mean, it is, I think it's the hardest thing to write personally. I agree. I agree. Because you write poetry and fiction, isn't that right? 
I do. I write poetry fiction. I'm currently working on a nonfiction book about teaching now. Mm. And you're a great teacher. And I think that that teaching, I've seen you with your kids. I went to your school. Um, you work at a continuation school and the kids are all super gifted and bright. They all have yeah. issues and they're all struggling. Like I struggled in high school and I felt such a connection to these kids. But the, the way you feed the kids, the way you adore your kids, the way you talk to your kids, the way you motivate your kids, the way you love your kids, um, it really inspired me. And I think that is probably why you were able to create this connection with Tessa, because you were able to love her unconditionally like you would love a child, right? With yes. forgiveness. Well, a teacher once asked me, why do the kids want to go to your classroom? And I said, love. And I meant it because love is not a dirty word. Teaching is an act of love. Paulo Freire, okay, a famous um, educational theorist. Mm -hmm. Teaching is an act of love. And mm -hmm. if we remember that and we teach the students, not just the curriculum, we'll get a lot further in reaching mm -hmm. our kids because Everybody wants to be accepted. Everybody wants to be heard and seen. And when you see and hear people and accept them and meet their needs, miracles happen. And you create these connections that are just like you and I, you know, sisterhood, teacher and studenthood. You know, we have a family. That's why my next book is titled Stamily, because Stamily is con combining students, family and stamina, because teachers have a really hard job. It's a very physical job. I've been going to, to bed early and getting up late since the beginning of the year because I haven't been used to it because I was out of the classroom for a number of years as an administrator and a coach. So, you know, if we have the right kind of classroom culture, we can have beautiful classrooms. And, but it's not just the teacher's job to do that. It's all connected. It's the students. It's the families. It's the staff. It's the principal. Mm -hmm. Everyone. And if we can do that, we can really have those restorative practices embedded into all classrooms. Yeah, and speaking of restorative practices, the thing I was uh, that I'm most interested in is this intersection of the criminal system. You know, I don't call it the criminal justice system; I call it the criminal system, the criminal system, the school system, the foster system, the juvenile system. All these um, infrastructures that we've created that we've basically created people that we look at them as less than even a continuation school. Why isn't it just called a school, right? A lot of your kids have dealt with a lot of trauma and it's amazing that they're in school at all, right? Yeah. I mean, I heard their stories and I was just so touched and I would never share their stories. It's not my place to share it. But um, speaking of sharing, let's hear you read. Um, you're going to read two portions. I believe you're going to, you can tell us what you're going to read and I'm going to put the spotlight on. Okay, so like I said, I'm going to, we did have a series of prompts, and the introduction is actually from one of the prompts. So I'm going to start there on the introduction about how we started our journey. Thus began our journey. The highlights of this experience was the opportunity to hear Tessa's story and for her to hear my story. Tessa and I found a lot of commonalities in our experiences, even as they varied widely. Tessa's story inspired me as her truth and authenticity flowed from the pages. I wrote about issues I never thought I could write about. So this experience of exchanging epistolary emails with another woman changed my life forever. Besides the anxiety of writing to a stranger, I feared I would not be able to help Tessa develop her story as I wanted to honor her strong writing ability and honesty. 
I asked her lots of questions and asked her to dig deeper. During this phase of the writing, we had to do an outline of the chapter of our books. Both Tessa and I wrote how we never used the outlining process, but I was amazed how outlining the book gave, gave flesh and bone to my work. An important lesson I learned was that I had preconceived ideas of my unknown student's writing ability. I thought I was going to correct grammar and spelling, and instead I had this thoughtful and soulful writing writer pour out her story in a welling language that brought tears to my eyes. This experience helped break down the stereotypes I didn't even know I had regarding people who were incarcerated. I became a teacher because I had hope at the center of my core. Hope drew me to pep. Hope sustained me through these most challenging times in our country. And hope allowed Tessa and me to write our stories with the belief that if we tell our truth, you will hear us connect to our journeys and have a better understanding of Tessa's life and my own. Working on writing this book helped me grow in unique ways. Reading Tessa's story helped me see how powerful her growth was during her time of incarceration. Tessa freed herself from hate and hers is a story of hope and redemption. Reading her writing while writing my own story, I reframe my story. I survived and my challenges are just an integral part of my story. I healed my shame and guilt through the process of writing. I pray with a deep breath of love in and out that my story will help other people accept and love themselves. Thank you, Tessa, for writing your story. Thank you for writing and trusting me with your words. I thank the gods that be for bringing you into my life. So that was the first part, Juanita. That was beautiful. You know, I love that introduction and how you um, admit that you have these biases. And we all have unconscious biases. We all do. Believe it or not, no matter what race or color you are, you have unconscious biases. So you have these unconscious biases, which are probably based on some kind of statistical knowledge that she might not be a good writer, but she actually is a beautiful writer. And and I know from speaking with you that the editing process with her was more just editing passive voice and stuff like that. And when you read her words, she talks about how she loved books as a kid. And that's one intersection, right? Behind you is this poster of Wizard of Oz. Yes. And I remember being little and going to the library. Our mom would always take us to the library. And as Sandra Cisneros says, um, this is my favorite quote by Sandra Cisneros. I always tell people that I became a writer, not because I went to school, but because my mother took me to the library. Mm, And that love of written written words. words is something that is intersections is is an intersection with all good writers. Mm-hmm. We love to read. I personally believe that. I don't know many good writers that don't love to read. Yes, and I think in the book she talks about that. Her love of writing, reading and writing from an early age. She always wanted to, she was always a reader and she always wanted to write a book. Uh, wow. so, yes. Yeah, so it was really a dream of her. So that's another intersection that we both have that same dream. You know that I'm really into movies and I always wanted to be a movie critic, right? Which is another career of writing. Roger so, Ebert. Yeah. Roger Ebert at the movies. Two thumbs up. And we have all these intersections. Jackie and I will wear the same thing. And she wrote this piece recently about Roger Ebert. And I told her, I can't find the poem. It's a really old poem. But I wrote this one page poem called On Being Roger Ebert. 
And it was uh, from a narrator who's walking around New York, eating a bagel, going to see all these different movies and thinking, what a life to be Roger Ebert. Like, this is his life, right? Yes, I love it. Forget about it. Rest in peace, my dear critic. So um, why don't you read us another piece? And is this going to be a memoir piece? It is. And it's from our childhood. And it was so interesting, the story you read, because I could have wrote that story too, right? Because a lot of our books kind of echo each other in so many different ways. So this chapter is called, uh, or is titled Marie That Will Do. And I'm about 10 years old in it. Okay. Okay. Spotlight's on you. Okay. Thank you. And I always start most of my chapters with a quote. And this one is by Stephen King. We make up horrors to help us deal with the real ones. Excuse me. We make up horrors to help us cope with the real ones. Stephen King. In Ontario, California, in the early 1980s, Halloween was a big deal. Our entire block would decorate and pass out candy. We loved going trick-or-treating with my dad. Now, I remember one Halloween when we were around 10. We were home from school and ready to go. Jenny, my older twin sister, was brown-skinned with curly hair, a skinny frame in a black leotard and tights, a wicked black cat. I was identical in face and costume, except for a larger dimple, 10 pounds, and black mouse ears. Annie, our younger sister, looked like she could put, be put in an Easter basket. She followed Jenny around, strutting in her pale pink leotard tights, and of course, furry rabbit ears. Her pale skin contrasted with her straight, long black hair. Marie, you make a great mouse. You want some cheese, Jenny said. They giggled. Jenny and Annie. I did not. I had a stomach ache. I was not sure if it was the Snickers I stole or something else. It was 4 p.m. and neither of our parents were home yet. My mom usually bought our costumes at the Goodwill, but this year there was nothing at the Goodwill but clowns and devils. Mom, can't we just be animals this year using leotards? You can paint our faces and we can each be a different animal, Jenny said. I get to be a bunny, Annie called out. I'm a cat, said Jenny. I'll be a dog, I said. It was not to be. There were no matching leotards to go with the brown dog. Marie, be a mouse, said Jenny. I don't want to be a mouse, I said. Marie, just get what you can. I need to go to work in an hour. Now, my mom worked as a waitress at a Chinese restaurant in Ontario, California. She picked up two extra shifts to make the necessary tips to buy our costumes. I looked at the black ears of the mouse. Well, Mickey was kind of cool, but I hated looking so much like Jenny. I went to the cupboard and grabbed another Snickers bar and ran to the door when I saw my dad's face in the window. I always felt special with my dad. We all crowded around him and modeled our costumes. He hugged and kissed us on our heads. I smelled the familiar scent of cigarettes and beer on his breath. Go get ready, Daddy, Annie said. My dad dressed up too. That year, my mom had bought my dad a plastic eight ball costume from Kmart. Where's your mom? She needs to paint my face. I thought she would beat me home. I could have had another beer. My mom walked in at that very moment. She was already in her costume. As at work, the owner let the waitresses dress up. My mom was a witch. Her dress was black, she had a pointy hat, and her face was bright green. My dad had a couple more curves while my mom painted his face. My mom stayed behind to give out candy. Now, my dad was a truck driver by trade, so his hands were steady as he drove up slowly north 
up Euclid to Upland. This was where the rich lived. In my childhood mind, anyone who lived in a two-story house with tree-lined streets was wealthy. We heard the sirens first, and then the blue and red lights filled the rearview mirror. Shit. Daddy, you owe us. My dad pulled over into the Stater Brothers parking lot. He sat quietly smoking a cigarette as a police officer came to the window. Your tail lights out, sir, the police officer said. I need your license and registration. The next thing, they had my dad out of the truck. I saw him talking to the police with his hands raised to them pleadingly. He pointed to us and we waved and stuck our heads out of the truck. It was dark by the time my mom arrived. My dad had a ticket, but he shook the police officer's hands as he allowed my mom to load us all, my dad included, into her Ford Thunderbird. That 502 is going to cost a month's rent, my mom said. Good thing the police officer knew me from the restaurant. He let us park the truck. Girls, I'm sorry. You can have my candy I've stashed at home, dad said. His arm on my mom's shoulder, who was in survival mode. She saved her fury for later. As we devoured miniature Snickers, M&Ms, and Babe Ruth's from the bright orange tub that was once meant for trick-or-treaters, we heard our parents' loud voices. We tried to concentrate on the chocolate in our mouths and shut out our fears. Yeah. <laughs> Beautiful. You know, I don't. Rem I remember Dad getting his five hundred two. I don't mm -hmm. remember him getting it on Halloween. I'm sure it was. And uh, it's funny the things we remember and the things we forget. And it's really interesting if you put my recollections with Annette's, with Annie's, who has a really good memory like an elephant, and your recollections, we'd probably have a full, really full history. Yes. Um, I remember a lot from when I, I was very little. I remember from um, age three, four to uh, junior high, like almost like a movie. And then in high school, I remember a lot. Um, the high school scenes were the hardest to write. But I actually don't remember a lot of my 20s. And Funny. I was drinking a lot. And, um, you know, I think it's interesting what we remember and what we forget. And sometimes we remember the bad and don't and we forget the good. And my both of our books are about reconciling that. Like, I, I have this quote uh, by Joan Didion that I also use um, at the beginning of the book. And um, I think it's what's that quote? Let me just. I love that quote. Memory fades, memory adjusts, memory conforms to what we think we remember. Mm. That's Joan Didion. And so um, you're going to have in writing memoir. Some of it, some of it is recreation. Right. I call my book a young adult novel memoir because I use fiction techniques mm -hmm. to tell a true story. Right. And so do you. You use more of a lyrical voice, but very similar. Well, I also admit that some events may be fragmented and out of order, um, mm -hmm. that I've changed some names. Like you and Annie, I go by Jenny and Annie, mm -hmm. but the only real names that stay the same are my dogs, Elizabeth, mm -hmm. Barrett, Browning, and Harper Lee, and Sparrow, because like I can't harm a dog by telling their name. And that's really the only reason I change people's names is to to save them from harm because one of the tenets in my program, because I am in sobriety is to harm no one, right. To do no more harm, to make amends in your life. So that's a part of it. And that harm even goes to myself. And that's why mm -hmm. when I wrote the book, I really wanted to go by Marie Rodriguez because I was an administrator at the time. And some of the stuff I disclosed, some people could take it out of context and use it against me. Mm -hmm. And, and that's a reality. That's yeah. the reality. And 
so I was really scared, but after it, I'm not scared anymore because you know what? I'm very honest and authentic now. And even some of my students have read my book and you know what they tell me? You, you show me that you can get through struggles and have a better life. You, you, you show me that a better life is out there. If I'm struggling right now, if I can hang on, you know, really do my best, you know, try not to use drugs or alcohol and, uh, go to school. <laughs> Yeah, you know, we grew up with um, mom stressing education. Yes. You know, uh, it took me so many years to write my book because, you know, and I'm sure our, your years living, you're, you know, reconciling these memories in your head that mom is the one that kept it all together in yes. the end, who corralled our Don Quixote type chasing windmills father <laughs> who owned a bar lost everything we lost our house we moved from rental to rental our senior year of high school and i think it's really interesting how lack of economic privilege and chaos can affect young kids i think that it's um underestimated how much um financial instability can impact children and you think children don't know but children know so much don't oh, you agree yeah. well and you're just talking about like even like college choices right? right so as an adult I always worked two jobs all through school and I could have went to any school at a 3.92 after my doctorate and but I didn't not because I didn't want to go to USC or anything because I really just had to work a job and have pay rent and stuff my whole life since yeah. I was 18 I that's the only life I knew. And I couldn't, somehow you found the courage to go to USC, but I had always worked so much. I couldn't even qualify for some student for some mm -hmm. financial aid because I worked so much, but I worked so much so I could pay my bills so I could have an yeah. apartment or even help mom and dad. So I've always worked two to three jobs my whole life. And that has yeah. hurt me sometimes. And I didn't have like that knowledge. And I don't care about, um, elite schools. I think I got a perfectly wonderful education at the Cal State San Bernardino where you I did, did yeah. my education. I had wonderful educators. So I don't believe in that, but I do think there is something to be said to keeping all options open. And yes. if you can go to an elite school, if you have the cap capacity, do it. But you have to be able to yeah. see it. I didn't see it. That's so interesting because, you know, when I was at Mount San Antonio and I was applying to, um, university to transfer my I was the editor-in-chief of the Mountaineer and I had won an award for the story and my professor was Gina D. Paola who used to work for the Washington Post and she wanted me to apply to Columbia I couldn't see it mm. I was so terrified when she said that New York City this little IE girl no 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 I'm applying to UC Riverside she never spoke to me again she was so angry at me we got in a knockdown drag out like argument verbal argument and you know I, I love to talk some shit and I said some things I didn't mean and we never spoke again and she really um I remember I didn't have enough money for food at some point and she got me a $500 stipend a month wow for being the editor-in-chief because I was working but I was always I didn't have a car you know I never had a working car <laughs> so I was always trying to get to school get to my waitressing job it was so stressful it took me so many years to get through Mount Sac that when I got to UC Riverside and I didn't have to work, I was like, this is effing easy, right? Yeah. And then I got to USC Law and I had enough money um, 
by second year not to work at all and not to worry about money. And um, I went to USC because they gave me the best financial aid package. I never really believe, I don't believe in the elitism of universities either, but I do think, I do tell young women of color that are applying to law school, go to the best law school you can go to that gives you the most money. So it's a balance. How much money are they giving you and where are they ranked? Because you're leaving your options open, like you said. And too many young women of color, we sell ourselves short. Oh, totally. And, you know, I tell all my kids now, if I can do it, you can do it. If if I can go to college, you can go to college. If I can get sober, you can get sober. If I can be kind and loving after the kind of life I've had, you can be kind and loving. And I mean that. And that's really my whole life now is philosophy is love. Um, Love of self, love of others, love of the world. That's the only reason I'm still on this planet. And that's how I'm going to live my life in my writing and in my teaching career. Because I'm, I'm proud to be a teacher. I thought I didn't want to be a teacher. Just kind of like we have those intersections when yeah. you, you try to run away from, you know, Ontario. And you thought you could find it at, you know, a high-end law firm in Texas. Well, I tried to run away to my district and become mm-hmm. an administrator. And it was totally the wrong decision. And I had two years of hell. And it wasn't because it was such a bad job, although it was. It was my first worst job ever. But it was also because it was not the right position for me because I'm meant to be a teacher. And I know that now. And I accept that. After seeing you with your kids, I'm like, you are meant to be a teacher. And, you know, what what is so brave, what you did is you got out when you knew it wasn't working. I spent almost seven years as a corporate lawyer. And I knew on day one I was in the wrong place. I cried in the shower that day. And I cried in the shower every day for almost six years because I knew it wasn't for me. The day I started at the public defender's office is like the day I wrote my first story. I knew it was meant to be. I'm like, I found my people. Where, uh, no one ever told me, oh, the public defenders are punk rock and cool. You know, you think government lawyers were such hardworking lawyers that believe in liberty and justice for all, not just for some. I just wanted to read this little passage really quick because when you're the the beautiful story um what's the name of it the one you just wrote read marie, that will do marie that will do about the um day dad got his dui and we're dressed up as yeah. cats and mouses and it was so cute and we have a picture of that i have that picture somewhere of right. us dressed up in those costumes so i just wanted to read this because i think it's funny um when i was really little and this is where these intersections come in I dressed up as Nancy Drew for the Ontario Library Book Parade after Annie stole my Laura Ingalls Wilder Prairie Girl Mm. idea, which was a bunch of bullshit. To make it worse, Mom bought Annie a bonnet, just like the one Laura Ingalls used to wear. Nancy Drew was less recognizable, but on the cool scale, I told Annie with a smirk that Nancy Drew could kick Laura Ingalls' ass any day. Mm. For my costume, I wore a turtleneck and a short skirt with tights. Just to make sure everyone knew who I was, I carried a spyglass and a sign that said, I'm Nancy Drew. (laughs) Everyone really dug my costume. I told Annie she looked old and dusty. (laughs) So um, there's a line where you use the word cool. Yeah. And I was like, oh, this is weird. There's all these intersections, you know, the, the idea of dressing up. I, and we both love Halloween, right? We've yes. always loved Halloween. Yes, we always kids. loved Halloween. 
Yeah. Well, and that that will do refers to the the movie Babe. Um, mm. That'll do Babe. And because you know, part of my struggles have been with eating and eating disorders, mm-hmm. and um, that weight, my weight has always been one of my biggest issues in my life. And you know, it's connected to the alcoholism. Obviously, you know, they're treating now, you know, like eating disorders the same way that they're treating alcoholism with the twelve step program in some people's, you know, philosophy. So, um, you know. I really, that, you know, that intersection too. And I think all women can relate to people to like really struggling with food or even just with weight in general. And it doesn't have to be an eating disorder. It's just a part of our society because how we're socialized. And Latina aunts, tias are the worst. It's like, oh, you know, they put you into little boxes. Jenny, you're the skinny one. Jackie, be careful. She's got John's jeans. You know, the fat twin and the skinny twin. And we were not that far apart in weight. No. When we look back at pictures, I think there was a pound difference. You were taller too. So I was about an inch shorter than you growing up. And you maybe weighed 10 pounds more. But this is in the 70s when kids were smaller. Yes. And so any kind of, um, anyone that wasn't thick, thin stood out, right? But you were not that heavy as a kid. No. At all. No. And so, so, you know, um, so that was a really good thing to kind of get out into the world because I think it's really important for older women uh, to talk to younger girls or have their stories out there about this and, and realize that it's not about that because in later chapters, I write about becoming a triathlete and becoming like an incredible shape. Best shape of my life was at 48. I was 140 pounds and I was all muscle. Girl, you you scared the shit out of me when I was swimming at open water. Yes. But you know what I write? I write that even beautiful results can come from a sick mindset. And so really Mm. at this point in my life, I'm really working on that, how I approach food, how I work with food, how I look at myself. Because um, that's part of healing. And that was part of writing this book. Helped me really put that on paper and helped me realize, wow, that's not healthy to like run around blocks pulling a sled because I want to be in really good shape. There's other ways to be in good shape physically, Mm -hmm. mentally, and emotionally. You don't have to have, once again, that idea of pain. How much pain and suffering do you create for yourself? And how do you create a life that is beautiful and healing? And accept yourself. I am a big girl. I may photograph well, but I am a big girl. And what I have learned to accentuate is my face. Yeah. My face. I work on my face. I take good care of my skin. I wear lashes. I wear makeup. I do my hair. I wear funky outfits. I don't often shoot myself from the whole thing. And I think that I'm okay with being this weight at this age. I've had weight loss surgery. I was a lot thinner five years ago. I was like a size 10. Um, Now I'm a 14, 16. And I'm okay with that at 50 years of age. How thin do you want to be? Because it's face or fanny. You can't have both. You're either (laughs) going to have a good face and a big fat fanny, or you're going to have no fanny and be thin and have a messed up face. I really do believe that. The thinner you are, the older you get, your face looks more haggard. Well, and it's just really like at this point, I do enjoy exercise. I really do. I love to swim, walk. I walk now and cycle, but I'm really working on more yoga too, just to be Mm -hmm. kind to myself. And I think that's a message for all women is to be kind to themselves, take care of yourself and love yourself because you you should really be your best friend. And I mean that we should love ourselves as much as we love anyone in this world. Yeah. And if you want McDonald's, eat a McDonald's. You don't have to eat like a Big Mac meal. 
What's your favorite McDonald's? Cheeseburger, no onion, small fry, and a large Diet Coke. I would change it slightly. Cheeseburger, extra pickles, just like it is, and then a small fry and a Diet Coke. <laughs> when we were little, I used to always get the orange soda, but they don't have it anymore. It's supposedly yeah. coming back. Um, it has too much sugar. I couldn't drink it now, even if I wanted to. But, yeah, I still have a fondness for McDonald's. Who doesn't love McDonald's? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I think it really is about listening to your body. You know, I try to stop eating now. You know, I eat a lot of chips and dip. I snack all day long. You know, my mother-in-law would be like, more chips and dip when you know? How many th-? You know, an agent will be like, how many times did you go to the fridge today? And I can't help it. I'm just a natural toast, chips, dip snacky yes. person I don't like big meals I've never if you eat with me I will eat a little bit of food but I will eat all day long and that's okay I'm 50 years old if my body's telling me I'm hungry I'm gonna eat and you love to eat you love to eat I do live to eat or eat to live I, I mm-hmm. live I live to eat why don't you read us one more uh piece we got about five more minutes to sure. take us out uh, whatever you I- want and uh, let me just tell everyone this book is called Embracing Dawn. It's available on Amazon. It's sponsored by the Prison Education Project. They actually published it. They're an institution that works with the uh, people who are. Hello. This is going to be their first book in their bookstore. So Embracing Dawn for now, you can get it on Amazon. And it's a beautiful read. It really is. So And, and remember that all proceeds benefit the Prison Education Project. I, uh, Tess and I are not pre- profiting by this book. Uh, it's just not my thing because um, when you think about it, somebody died for this book, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah. um, I'd love to read about, uh, this is a weird one, but I'd like to read the story about meeting my husband. Go ahead. My greatest gifts. And it's called Por Vida. And Por, por Vida means for life, right? Um, yeah. Of all the gin joints in all the towns and all the world, she walks into mine, Casablanca. Pivotal moments in, one life, in one's life are sometimes made up of the mundane until they are no longer and one's future is spread out like a magic carpet and life takes over. I went to many AA meetings and stayed sober. After work, I kept going to the Palm Springs 3 p.m. meeting. It was down the street from my high school. I saw Eloy in the room sitting at the white round table. He never sat on the blue velour chairs as they had dark stains on them. He always used a paper cup rather than picking up one of the numerous ceramic cups. He was handsome with dark hair and skin and a smile that went to his eyes. One day, I walked out of the room after a meeting. Eloy stood outside smoking a cigarette. Hi, how you doing, Marie? Hi, Eloy, I'm good. So you're a teacher, huh? I didn't know teachers could have tattoos. They can if they have master deg- master's degrees, I retorted. Gamete, I was just joking. Some of us are going for coffee. Want to go? At Starbucks, Eloy sat quietly and let others speak, sipping his coffee. He kept staring at me. I smiled at him, and he simply nodded and smiled back. Want to go on a hike Sunday morning? We we're meeting at Starbucks. I almost didn't go. A voice within me told me to go. So I went and met Eloy and a group of other AA members at the Whitewater Preserve. As we walked, a vieja named Dorothy looked at me and said, 
Are you 12-stepping her, Eloy? Remember, she's a newbie. Now, in AA, it is suggested that one not date anyone who did not have at least a year of sobriety. I was five months sober, but I was no poster child for AA, and neither was Eloy. We ran off ahead and laughed as he helped me over the boulders and grabbed my hand. We sat by the water, and I listened as as he spoke about his daughter. Want to go get something to eat, Eloy asked. We can leave these yahoos to hike for a few more hours. I'd like to spend more time alone with you. I never turn down a meal. Let's drive together and I can bring you back to your car later, he said. As the server brought our tuna melt and fries, I held hands with Eloy, both of us smiling. I did not know it at the time, but Eloy never shared a plate with anyone. But that day, he won my heart when he shared a sandwich with me. Dating him was simple. He wrote me a letter telling me he only wanted to date me exclusively. Soon after, I took him to my condominium and he immediately brought some paint and covered up the mural my ex-girlfriend painted on the wall as he shook his head when he saw the flames leaping out and my ex's form throwing pages into the fire. I don't know how you slept with that in your face. Eloy helped me to feel safe. My family and I always spent the holidays together. Eloy agreed to go to Easter brunch to meet my family. We met at the Morongo Casino. Eloy and I held hands and we leaned in close to one another. Is she marriage material, Eloy? Jenny asked. Of course she's marriage material, Eloy said. On April 25th, 2010, Elvis married us in Las Vegas. Our rings and outfit bought at Macy's the day before. As we drove, we talked and cried. When we arrived in Vegas, we ate pancakes and wrote our vows on paper napkins. After our ceremony, which we broadcasted online, Eloy's sister thought it was a joke. Eloy and I watched The Lion King and feasted on an Elvis-themed dinner and toasted our marriage with sparkling water. It was the first time in my life a moment such as this was captured with clarity. I remember driving to Las Vegas in a turquoise tank top with the sun on our faces. I remember eating peanut butter and jelly dessert, looking at Eloy, handsome in his tan suit, and I still in my silver Gresham-style wedding dress. I remember feeling safe, loved, and content as we fell asleep in our bed at the Hooters Hotel that I booked on Priceline. Our room was quite a deal, and so was Eloy. Oh, and that's dedicated to my love, Por Vida, Joe Rodriguez. I love that story. I love how uh, you connect with him because he lets you eat off his plate. (laughs) (laughs) He he didn't want to. He said he was like, who's this weird girl asking me to um, eat off her? Because we shared a meal. I I don't think I make it clear there, but we shared a meal. And I was like, yeah, because I had to have the stomach gastric bypass surgery. So I couldn't eat big meals. And I was like, can we share? And he's like, does she think I don't have enough money or something? Because, you know, Joe has this weird sense of humor, but he was like, okay. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's awesome. And I also remember that day at the Morongo Casino when I asked him, oh, is she marriage material? And then you and Joe were like, does she know something? How does she know this? And it's just a twin thing. I think I probably picked up on the connection uh, between you and Joe and uh, Eloy in the story. But Tracy's here. Tracy said, beautiful. She loved your story. Thank, Thank you, Tracy, Tracy, for watching. Trey, Trey. So, thank you for watching. Thank you, Jackie, for coming on. Buy her book, Embracing Dawn. 
You'll love it. It's by Marie Rodriguez, a.k.a. Jacqueline Mance, Dr. Jackie Mance, and Tessa McCarty, who is a pseudonym. Uh, but it's a beautiful contrasting narratives. And I, I wanted to point out one other thing, another intersection. Um, Jackie wrote this book um, the same time that I was writing my um, chat book. And unbeknownst to us, she had a sun and a moon on her book. And on my first book, I just, this used to be a sun and a moon, but we turned it into a black sun after the X song under the big black sun. And it's just weird, weird. Kismet. I find it kismet. Yes. Yeah. There are no coincidences. There are none. There are none. So this book, Embracing Dawn, it's beautiful. You'll love it. You'll really, um, I, the thing I love about it most is that it tells a story, but it also humanizes, right? And it it breaks down those stereotypes that we do have about people who are incarcerated, that they aren't, that they're less than, that they're not intelligent, that they're not good writers, that they're not people, right? They're people. And, and Tessa can tell a darn good story. She It's like Orange is the New Black. When I was reading it, when she, I was transcribing it, because I transcribed all her stuff into you know, a document so that I could send it to get published. Uh, I was like, man, this is as good as Orange is a New Black. Her stories about the chicken. She has some good stories about oh, prison life. Great stories. And I've always loved stories about yes. the inside world of prison life, of the public defender's office, which I told. I love stories about teachers. And Jack, you need to write that story about teaching because you are such a talented teacher. And I think that teachers kind of like public defenders we get a bad rap. And I think you need to um, polish up that image of the teacher, right? And that uh, you don't do it for any other reason than you love it. Is there any other job that people spend hundreds of dollars a year of their own money for kids? Yeah. Is there any other job? Hundreds, you thousands. And you said your kids uh, love you. I know they love you because of how loving you are and how open and how uh, accepting of them you are and how inspirational you are and how you teach them and your teaching methods and your pedagogy. You're great at that, but you also feed them. And when I was in your classroom, I was like, she has a tapatio bar. And, <laughs> and some of the kids didn't like their lunch. And you're like, oh, go make a peanut butter and jelly. It's it's that feeling of being home where you can open the fridge and you don't have to ask. They don't have to ask for anything in my classroom. Uh, it, I said, please don't ask. Just go get it. And I keep, I keep they keep doing it still because they're very respectful mm -hmm. young people. But I always tell them, what is mine is yours, you know, except for my wedding ring and some technology, you know, everything else. I don't need it, you know. So my my yeah. room is a home. It's a home, yeah. um, and because we spend so many hours a day in our classroom, so the best teachers' classrooms are homes. Yeah, and it felt homey. It really did. I'm going to go back next year. So we're going to sign off now. But buy her book, Embracing Dawn, on Amazon. Buy my new book, uh, Tales of an Inland Empire Girl. It's available for pre-order. And if anyone wants to know, Jackie's in the orange. Annie's in the green. And I'm in the yellow. And what, what were we saying, Jackie, that it's surreal to have your uh, childhood <laughs> self on a book? Well, and your tummy exposed. Like, <laughs> I never exposed my tummy. 
I love this picture. I don't it know what it's because we we often matched me and you for sure. But for sure. mom often dressed all three of us alike. Mm -hmm. But just these outfits and you can't see our shoes. But what's really interesting about this picture and it's very true to who we were. You and Annie are wearing these cute little white sandals. And I have on these big old blue tennis shoes because I were pigeon toed. I was pigeon toed and I was a tomboy and uh, I would wear the same thing over and over. And I still do that to this day. I wear the same green shirt for like a week. And Adrian's like, that thing's going to stand up on its own. Oh, I've been wearing my new jacket for like every day. And I don't even care. It wasn't even that cold today. I was like, I'm wearing my jacket. I want to see the whole thing stand up and twirl in it. <laughs> Come on. I want to see it because is it a, is it a Z? What kind of cut is it? It's a swing coat. So it's like, oh, yeah. so it's that is swings. gorgeous. Yeah. And that's a vintage from the 60s. Wow. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm, I would love to write a book about thrifting because I mm -hmm. am the thrifting queen and I never sell anything. I'm not like Melinda. I don't upsell or anything. I give a lot of clothes away because when I find clothes that are not my size that I like, I still buy them. So I have like size eights, tens, all in my cupboard right now because I'm like, ah. but I have some stuff I won't give away because it's so beautiful that I hope I get into someday. Hey, Trey, you got to come raid Jackie's closet. Yeah, I okay. have some <laughs> skinny mini clothing. <laughs> okay, love you all. Thank you for coming on again by Jackie's book, Embracing Dawn. It's available on Amazon, Embracing Dawn, Two Women's Stories brought together by the Prison Education Project. Thank you, and Prison Education Project. I love you. And remember, all the proceeds go to charity. Go to They go to the Prison Education Project, which is a nonprofit. Um, Life of Gem will be back next month. I have not lined up my roster of guests, but I will have a guest. It will be an Inland Empire writer. This season, I am focusing on IE writers. Um, maybe I might go to LA too. So let me say Southern California writers. That will be my focus this season. So thank you, Jackie, for coming on my Wonder Twin. Thank you. Wonder Twin Love Power Activate. Form of a book. Form of a book. Form of two books. Two and books. you're writing Three your books. next book. Stanley. Stanley. Okay. Bye, everybody. Take care. Bye.